It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a very big comet. How sewage monitoring could transform public health beyond just its applications for COVID-19. Plus, libraries are relinquishing local library card requirements for ebooks in a bid to fight back against book bans. And a new National Park annual pass that won't be valid for 150 years. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The Hubble Space Telescope has just confirmed that a comet that's been traveling towards the sun for over a million years is in fact the largest comet nucleus ever discovered. Named Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein, or maybe Berenstain, depending on which Mandela Effect timeline you're living in, it's bigger than the famously huge and bright Hale-Bopp comets. Heck, it is more than twice as wide as Rhode Island. Hale-Bopp, the giant comet of the 90s, was about 46 miles across. Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein is almost twice as wide, clocking in at about 85 miles across. That is 50 times bigger than most comets we know of, with an estimated mass 100,000 times greater than most comets we know of. And that we-know-of bit is crucial. Science Alert points out, quote, that freakishly large size, or rather the apparent weirdness of of it might say more about us and our limited conception of comets than it does about anything else. C-2014 UN-271, the Bernardelli-Bernstein comet, hails from the Oort cloud, a gigantic spherical scattering of icy objects proposed to surround the sun at the deepest and most distant stretches of our solar system. So far away, in fact, it's thought to extend at least a quarter of the way towards the next nearest star system, Alpha Centauri. Sounds pretty big, right? It is, theoretically speaking. However, the Oort cloud is so far away and so difficult to detect, it's basically a gigantic hypothetical mystery, even though astronomers consider it to be one of the largest structures in our solar system. Once in a while, though, something emerges out of this enigmatic mass gravitationally lured towards the sun from the remoteness of the cosmic hinterlands, end quote. And Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein is one such object. Discovered in 2014 by astronomers Pedro Bernardinelli and Gary Bernstein, the comet has been monitored for years. But in January, the Hubble Space Telescope captured five photos of the comet, which astronomers were able to use to confirm the comet's measurements. Quoting NASA, The challenge in measuring this comet was how to discriminate the solid nucleus from the huge dusty coma enveloping it. The comet is currently too far away for its nucleus to be visually resolved by Hubble. Instead, the Hubble data show a bright spike of light at the nucleus's location. Lead author Mantu Hui of the Macau University of Science and Technology and his team next made a computer model of the surrounding coma and adjusted it to fit the Hubble images. Then the glow of the coma was subtracted to leave the star-like nucleus. Nucleus. Huey and his team compared the brightness of the nucleus to earlier radio observations from the Atacama Large Millimeter-Submillimeter Array in Chile, or ALMA. This combined data constrains the diameter and reflectivity of the nucleus. The new Hubble measurements are close to the earlier size estimates from ALMA, but convincingly suggest a darker nucleus surface than previously thought. It's big and it's blacker than coal, said astronomer David Jewett from UCLA. End quote. 
Now, upon its discovery eight years ago, the comet was three billion miles away from the sun, roughly the distance between the sun and Neptune. And though it's sometimes described ominously as headed this way, at 22,000 miles per hour, no less, it will never actually come within a billion miles of the sun, so there's no need to worry. But when it gets to that point, around 2031, we probably won't be able to see it unaided like we could Hale-Bopp, but astronomers will be able to use that opportunity to get even more data about the comet, which could help them fill in some details about the Oort cloud. As Mashable points out, there could be trillions of icy comets in the Oort cloud. But the comets there have historically been too faint to be observed, which is what makes Comet Bernardinelli Bernstein's approach so exciting. Quoting again from Science Alert, It stands to tell us so much about the existence of the frozen, pristine masses that make up the Oort cloud. These are thought to have formed early in the inner solar system, before being flung out to its outermost fringes by the gravitational effects of giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. This comet is literally the tip of the iceberg for many thousands of comets that are too faint to see in the more distant parts of the solar system, says Jewett. End quote. And here's one more bonus detail about the Oort cloud that underscores just how mysterious it is and how rare it is to get a close look at anything coming from it. NASA says that their Voyager 2 probe, which is already 11 billion miles from Earth, won't make it to the inner realm of the Oort cloud for another 300 years and may not pass through to the other side for 30,000 years. Holy heck. I've mentioned a few times how analyzing wastewater has been a useful metric for early detection of COVID-19 spikes, and how it's becoming even more useful now that less people are getting tested regularly or are testing at home and not necessarily reporting the results to public health agencies. It's not an exact science yet, but it can reliably show coming trends, since viral RNA is present in an infected person's waste whether they have symptoms or not. And this can help a city prepare to implement measures before cases start spiking uncontrollably and provide resources to targeted neighborhoods that might prevent an out-of-control spike. Wastewater surveillance programs have cropped up within governments around the world, and it's been so successful that the conversation has now turned to how we can deploy this method beyond COVID-19. Vox notes that the COVID-19 pandemic was not the first time wastewater surveillance had been used for public health, but that it has typically been rare. John Dennehy, a City University of New York biologist who's been helping with New York City's wastewater surveillance program, told Vox, quote, This has been its coming out party. We've realized the power in this pandemic. Now there's a great interest in developing an infrastructure to sustain this capability beyond the pandemic. End quote. Apart from its efficacy, one reason that some experts especially like wastewater surveillance is that it's totally anonymous and unbiased. As Mark Johnson, a University of Missouri virologist who's assisted with the wastewater monitoring program there, told Vox, you don't have to worry about individual patient confidentiality. Johnson also told Vox about one non-COVID application that he's heard of, tuberculosis outbreaks. Missouri prisons have asked if their sewage can be tested regularly so that they can cut down on costly individual tests. And that's a great example of how the broad sewage testing can reduce the cost, supplies, and time of one-on-one -on -one testing. If there is no indication of a disease in a certain population's sewage, no need to test individuals at that time. And quoting Vox, 
Surveillance programs could watch for other pathogens too, such as influenza, hepatitis, and norovirus for early warnings of emerging outbreaks. Julianne Nasif, an expert on wastewater surveillance with the Association of Public Health Labs, said we could also monitor for bacteria, viruses, and other microbes that are resistant to current treatments. Public health officials could try to get ahead of an outbreak of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in a nursing home, for example, with the information gleaned from downstream sewage. Johnson envisioned communities monitoring for narcotics to better tailor their public health campaigns. Wastewater could be tested to determine whether cocaine or opioid use is rising in a given sewage shed. It could even determine what kind of opioids are being used, which could be helpful to health departments. Widespread heroin use might require a different intervention than diverted prescription opioids or black market fentanyl. End quote. Dennehy has even more ideas. Sewage could be monitored for viral markers associated with colon cancer. Communities near something like a nuclear power plant could be compared to ones elsewhere, and research could be conducted on environmental effects on health. Now, there are downsides, of course. Collection and adjusting for concentration is an issue right now, but a big one, in my opinion, is that many rural areas don't have a community wastewater system. Lots of states like Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, etc. simply don't have the public utility to draw on. And for the moment, the biggest obstacles seem to be the usual suspects, a reluctance from the government to fund public health initiatives, and a need for sectors unaccustomed to collaboration to have to work together. But the pandemic has shown how this can work, and there are a lot of ways that sewage monitoring can continue to help with this pandemic, like helping to identify variants and spot animal-to-human transmission and more. So hopefully it can continue to be shown how useful it is in this case so that more governments will invest in it for other uses in the future. One of the things that I love about living in New York City is having access to the amazing resource that is the New York Public Library System. And now NYPL is running a cool initiative that does not require you to live in New York City or have a library card at all to enjoy. In response to the book bans sweeping the United States, NYPL is making a selection of frequently banned or challenged books free on their e-reader app, Simply E. You don't need a library card to access them. There won't be any wait times or fines, although they will only be available through the end of May. I think mostly because NYPL had to really work with the publishing companies to pull this off. So better get reading. The Books for All collection includes the classic Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger as well as Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson, Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi, and the award-winning middle-grade novel King and the Dragonflies by the brilliant Kaysen Callender. You can additionally find hundreds of frequently banned or challenged public domain books in the Books for All collection. As NYPL President Tony Marks said in a statement, quote, "'Knowledge is power.'" Ignorance is dangerous, breeding hate and division. Since their inception, public libraries have worked to combat these forces simply by making all perspectives and ideas accessible to all. End quote. Now, Brooklyn Public Library seems to be doing one better by offering free one year e cards with access to their full collection of ebooks to readers aged 13 to 21 across the U.S. That card will also include access to connect with fellow young adults on BPL's Intellectual Freedom Teen Council to help learn about and fight censorship. Info about how to sign up for that is at the timeout link in the show notes. And BPL will also be making a selection of books available 
available without the use of a card, without wait times, like NYPL's Books for All. At Brooklyn Public Library, these books include The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, Tomboy by Liz Prince, The 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, and On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. These initiatives follow similar ones happening at schools and libraries across the nation. Quoting timeouts, the decision to offer up access to their ebook collections comes after a recent concerted effort by groups to remove books from library shelves that tackle a wide range of topics, including race, gender, and LGBTQ issues, religion, and history. The American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom counted more than 700 complaints last year, the most since it began keeping records more than 20 years ago, according to BPL. Linda E. Johnson, president and CEO of BPL, says that the library can not sit idly by while books rejected by a few are removed from the library shelves for all. End quote. And again from NYPL President Tony Marks, quote, the library's role is to make sure no perspective, no idea, no identity is erased. It has always been our role to connect people with the trusted information, the teen who has questions and wants to privately find answers, for the adult who is curious about subjects for which they have no personal experience, for those who want to make informed decisions based on fact. Since the founding of our great nation, libraries have been beacons of this kind of independent curiosity and and learning, and it is unacceptable that they be censored in any way. What exactly are we afraid of? End quote. Well, here's another pass that you can get to do some exploring in the natural world, not the intellectual one, except, well, you won't get to use it, and it is definitely not free. In honor of its 150th anniversary, Yellowstone National Park is selling a $1,500 annual park pass that will not be valid to use for another 150 years. They're calling them inheritance passes, and they can be used by your descendants, or whoever you leave it to in your will, and then possibly whoever they leave it to in their will, I suppose, starting in the year 2172, which is still before Voyager 2 will get to the inner realm of the Oort Cloud. Yellowstone says the Inheritance Pass is part of their focus on the future instead of looking back at the past on this milestone anniversary. And even though thinking that far into the future, especially with regards to a site of natural beauty, might make some of our hearts beat a bit quicker with anxiety, Yellowstone says they hope that the idea will encourage thoughts of stewardship of the land and provide families with a tie to the conservation of the park. The Inheritance Pass will function as an ordinary annual pass, which is inclusive of multiple people. As the FAQ page puts it, quote, most likely one solar-powered flying car's worth of your future loved ones. End quote. And while the pass won't be valid for 150 years, the park does clarify that the funds from donations will be used now. They will be going to Yellowstone Forever, which, quoting the Billings Gazette, supports park projects including things like trail improvements, youth education, native fish conservation, and scientific projects involving birds, bears, cougars, and wolves. End quote. And quoting Backpacker, it's hard to tell what the next 150 years could hold for Yellowstone. As one of the nation's most popular national parks, Yellowstone regularly breaks its own annual visitation records, increasing human impact and straining the park's infrastructure. In 2021 alone, the park hosted nearly 5 million visitors, making it the 12th most visited park. Compared to 2015, that's nearly a 20% increase. 
Conversely, with gas prices soaring, the park may see fewer tourist dollars over the near term. The Inheritance Pass could help to support the next chapter of the park by providing much-needed financial relief and resources to help tackle some of the park's most pressing challenges, end quote. I will also say that the physical pass itself looks super nice. It's a book-sized dark green pass with a gilded design. If you're the kind of person with the means to donate $1,500 to causes you support, I mean, it could be a fun gimmick. Plus, the fine print does clarify that donors who select the Inheritance Pass do also receive a complimentary annual pass valid for entry in the next year. But the Inheritance Pass is expressly not valid for upgrades to Grand Teton National Park. So you're out of luck, Grand Teton fans. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.